Welcome back to The Few Show, everybody. My name is Jim. I'm the, the co-founder of Exfusion.io and the co-host of The Few Show. I'm excited to be joined by my guest, Dr. Gerald Friedland. Gerald is a CTO and co-founder of Raynome, and he teaches an, as, as an adjunct professor at the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department of UC Berkeley. Before that, he was a principal data scientist with Lawrence Livermore National Lab after being with the International Computer Science Institute for 10 years. Welcome to the show, Gerald. Hello. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Jim. <laughs> nice You're welcome. You. I, so I want to kick right off into this. I, I did some research ahead of time and I see that you started programming at the age of seven. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly don't like I could talk at age seven. I could maybe start to read, but I certainly wasn't programming. So I, I'd, I'd love to hear that story. Like, what, what were you working on and what drove your interest? <laughs> Yeah, so this was actually a very interesting story. Actually, it's kind of funny. I like to reference Netflix shows. Right now on Netflix, there's this like $1 billion code uh, show okay. where there's these Berliners who basically, you know, built Google Earth before actually something that is like Google Earth, except Google Earth did it 10 years later and there was a huge lawsuit and so on. But the show, the, the show actually, the more interesting part is this coding guy is very much like me. So we had in the, in the, in the beginning 80s, uh, we had we had the Commodore 64, we had a Commodore 16 and all these computers. And it just piqued my interest. It was basically sitting in the basement. Nobody used it. We, my, my mom bought it from, from Aldi, which is like a discounter uh, in, in Germany. No, no idea how she got to that. But it, it sat there in the basement. Nobody used it. And my dad gave me this book. And the book was also in English. But it was like some things were in italic. Right, and the things that were in italic were the basic instructions that you should type in so that something happens. And now you can see a seven-year-old taking, first of all, for four lines of code, probably an estimated two hours to type or something, <laughs> because you know, like, I was looking for the P the whole time, like for like sure. probably half a minute each time, and barely knowing how to read and write. Definitely not knowing English because it was German. Um, but then, after having done this mega task of putting in four lines of basic in the computer, something happens on the screen. That wow. is obviously the most rewarding thing for a seven-year-old. And then I wanted to have this, you know, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> you know, rewarding uh, system in my brain got activated. You know, I wanted to have that again. And so then I put the same program in again because I didn't know how to save. But this time I made some mistake. And now something else happened. And so what happens is over the time, I started to manipulate the program and to figure out what each of the commands meant. So I basically learned programming like somebody learns to decipher a foreign language or something that nobody speaks. And um, it turns out, first of all, it's a good way to learn to programming by, by trying an error. That's actually how, how, how people learn really uh, fast. But also, uh, you know, it kind of made me, um, it made me really uh, sort of, you know, it, it trained me to the scientific process pretty early. And uh, since then, you know, I've applied it to a, a bunch of things. <laughs> that's so Basically. good. Started, yeah. That is so neat. I want to kind of circle back to that, but since you, this is a natural segue since you brought up science and I want to read a quote to you from, um, I think it's actually the, your page on the, mm -hmm. the Berkeley site, uh, but you said, quote, science is not just a job for me. Science is my passion, a life dedication, a devotion to overcoming political, societal, monetary, and historical biases and accepting nothing else but the one shortest observation-based explanation that minimizes the amount of ambiguity and contradiction. This is my definition of the truth. Now, I recognize you probably wrote this some time ago, but I'm wondering how you employ this in your daily life to overcome biases. I am absolutely still 100% behind this statement. Um, and um, I mean, I am, 
I sometimes call I call myself a, a science fundamentalist. Really, I am. I will take science over anything, um, including over you know it can get me into trouble, but including over scientific rule. Uh, sorry, over political rules and stuff. Right. I mean that's obviously also partly why, you know, it, people may find that strange. But why I emigrated into the U.S. I mean, you know, why why I came here mostly because you can be yourself, and and freedom is a big part of this. And so I have the freedom to apply science now. Telling other people. To apply science is, you know, not like a one-shot thing, as we know, especially if you look at, you know, vaccination rates and these kind of things mm -hmm. these days. But at least I can do my part to 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 make people understand that science is actually it's actually not optional. Okay, mm -hmm. so so what people think, okay, science is something I learn in school, and if I don't excel at it, oh, then I have to go into liberal arts or something. Please, this is just bad teachers. The reality is. If, if you know the Pavlovian dog experiment, that's science. So you ring the bell and then you give, give the dog food. Well, guess what? Now the dogs at some point learn bell means food. That's a prediction. Mm. And that obviously is, oh, he, this observation leads to this future, right? That obviously is already science. So even dogs, you know, do, do simple amounts of science. Um, and, and so it's, it's, we cultivated it as humans. And so basically we... We, we push it we push it forward and why do we do this well because it helps uh, society and it helps us beat evolution ultimately right ultimately i have this joke i say what if there was a method that would actually prolong your life and it would be right in front of you but most people ignore it the method is called science right <laughs> Hmm. that's actually what science is and yeah and so naturally i'm i'm very into into obviously teaching that um i'm also a a interesting i'm a proponent of teaching computer science a little differently than it's currently taught most people when they think of computer science think of programming and of course that's the thing that makes people money right now sure. um but it's interesting because we forgot that it's actually a science and lots of the things we do should fit into this sort of what i call the scientific canon we're basically, you know, you know, it's it's I give you an example out of out of out of machine learning. So, for example, you can ask many people. So when, when you have an artificial neuron, right? So we use the dot product as a threshold there, right? So the neuron fires if the dot product is greater than some value. And you ask people, why the dot product? There could be all kinds of ways we calculate this. Why the dot product? And it's interesting that many machine learning researchers give you answers like, oh, because we need to decorrelate. Or, oh, that's just what it is. Or we need to model a hyperplane. All of these things are not wrong. But the real answer is that the dot product is the geometric interpretation of energy. And of course, a neuron is an energy threshold because you want to think about your left pinky toe only if I step on it, or I mention it, that's obviously a different one. But mm -hmm. reality is we have so many sensors all over our body. And of course, what a neuron really does is ignore information, <laughs> right? Basically thresholding the information, only having your attention focus on stuff that matters. Well, otherwise we wouldn't be able to function. Otherwise there would be no way to function. And there are all kinds of diseases where your neurons fire too much and then you have to do something about it. Have you, this wasn't yeah. planned, but it brings up an interesting thought in my mind. Have you studied, so people with autism, for example, have a high level of sensitivity, most of them, many of them, a high level of sensory sensitivity. Is that related to what you're saying or, or have, you, have you thought about that? So I mostly really work with artificial uh, uh, neural networks, right? Or mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, basically. 
Um, but I more and more start to see that there are these parallels and I, I cannot give you the answer for it, but I'm pretty sure that the more we understand about artificial, we will also understand about the real uh, game. Um, and it seems to me the right way to go. Often people think, no, we do brain first, then we do artificial. I think artificial first, then brain is probably easier, but you know, uh, we can just debate and discuss that, right? That's just an opinion. So were you the type of kid that asked why questions all the time? Absolutely. Well, yeah. <laughs> so why questions are the most important questions. And unfortunately, I feel like they have been suppressed, especially in this World War II generation, right? Because if you, if you have to fight two world wars, then of course you shouldn't answer. I mean, basically, why do I shoot these people is a bad question, right? It's a good question, obviously, but not in, the, in that moment and when we had World War II. And so unfortunately, even because many, uh, many, much of the science was military driven, it seems to me that it was suppressed, why questions were suppressed. And uh, I absolutely encourage people to ask why questions. And yes, it leads to the next why question and the next why question and the next why question. And that's okay, because that gives you depth. Yeah. You know, back to, uh, to AI, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Have you been following what Elon Musk is doing in Neuralink? Uh, I haven't been following a lot of this because unfortunately, so I, I started working on artificial intelligence and, and neural networks in 2001. That <laughs> was a long time way, ago. way before they were in any way popular. Okay. And what uh -huh. happened is we knew about all these things that don't work with them, like hyperparameter tuning, for example, you actually have to sometimes choose more parameters to randomly to start with than you're trying to learn. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's very bad. And so, we were like, okay, yeah, that's research. That's cool. Let's work on this. And then at some point, uh, you know, industry, I think Google, Microsoft, et al. made us a product, but without fixing any of the things. And, and so, so now we have 1 million expert opinions on what it should be. Hmm. But unfortunately, what I don't see and what I'm trying to push personally is a scientific approach to these things, right? Just like, you know, it's an energy threshold. So what do we know about energy thresholds, right? As we combine energy thresholds, you will see that chemistry has a lot of a lot to say about energy absorption, for example. <laughs> so the point here is there's a lot of knowledge that we could borrow left and right from different disciplines, but no, rather we, we reinvent the wheel and, and try to not think about these uh, things and, 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 but it's much nicer to be popular because if you say the word machine learning and if you say the word uh, artificial intelligence, then people tend to listen. Um, but unfortunately, I have bad news because I'm there to dispel the magic. You know, that's what scientists do, right? <laughs> it sounds like magic, but the point is, no, what scientists do is they dispel the magic and, and um, they, they go in and, and make things, uh, you know, measurable, for example. And, and that's actually the, the big part of, of, of my work that I'm doing right now. So I don't understand why when an engineer builds an airplane, a car, a kitchen, a house, a bridge, whatever, you name it, the, it starts with measurements. When you go to, to, to I don't know, I'm just going to say the brand Home Depot and want to remodel your kitchen, they're going to ask mm -hmm. you for measurements first. Yeah. But how is it that when we build a model, nobody does measurements first? But why, do they not, why do they not? Well, because they, the measurements are not known. And also there's incentive to just use the biggest model possible because people like Google and Amazon and uh, others are paid for the computational power. So the more overhead it takes, uh, 
uh, the better for them. It's so there's like, misalignment in incentives. There's misalignment in incentives. Usually that's the cause for many things. And the other thing is that there's also a lack of knowledge. For some reason, uh, while there's so much theory out there for so many things, for machine learning, we actually have a lack of theory. Um, because, uh, and, and I tell my students, please go read the books from 30 years ago because they had a lot more theory and they were a lot more uh, founded than modern books on artificial intelligence. They just treat mm. all the sort of artificial intelligence like a black box, like, oh, we can't understand that either because it's intelligent. Uh, mm. No, of course we can. We build those things. Why don't we just build neural networks, you know, just like we build bridges. And, and of course, that's um, not only my class at UC Berkeley, it's experimental design on machine learning, but it's also um, my company um, where we started to automate the process um, using information measurements. I want to hear a lot more about Brainome, but real quick, while it's on the tip yeah. of my, my mind, I don't want to, I want to ask you, like, what do you see, what, like, what would you predict in the, what would we say, like evolution of AI and machine learning in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Where are we headed? Well, so I think, unfortunately, there's only two possible outcomes that I can see. One is we're going into winter again because the hype is over and we didn't solve the problems that we should have solved. Mm -hmm. That's one way. And we hope that doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. The other way is that we become a lot more rational about these things and start to think about like engineering discipline. And of course, I think I see some of these movements like ML ops and so on. We start to become more reasonable about, about things um, um, but the reality is that so far, and, and this is sort of my, my goal, is to make building models an engineering discipline. We know so much about model building from physics, for example. I mean, the first model builder was Isaac Newton, okay? <laughs> so, so he modeled the apple falling from the tree. Perfect. So why don't we use you know, the principles we learned there, for example, Occam's razor, you mentioned it, mm -hmm. um, to, to do that. And if, if you ask uh, Google for why is the GPT-3 model so big, they give you all kinds of answers, but the real answer should be, it shouldn't be so big. It actually, it should be a lot smaller. I okay. See. And there's a bunch of academics who agree with me on this, by the way. Okay. So bringing this down kind of to the ground level, what do you see as the practical application, not for you know, scientists like yourself, but for end users of AI technology, where, where are we headed in terms of societal application? Yeah, so we have to do, I have to uh, make a quick, uh, quick distinction between machine learning and AI. Okay? okay. So most topics I was talking about machine learning. Okay? okay, machine learning is we train a finite state machine, you know, instead of training a brain, <laughs> okay. finite state machine is your laptop with whatever algorithm, whether it's a neural network, a random forest or whatever you come up with, we train that to do some task, you know, and the trick is to not do that by hand, by programming, but to do that automatically, right? So basically right. just showing it sample, right? And so for machine learning, what I see is the complete automatization. In fact, that's what my company Brainome is, is heading to, where you basically, instead of just guessing and checking different models, no, you build them based on information measurements, just like an engineer. That's what I see there. And okay. now that you have machine learning and it's easy to use, uh, then our next goal, is to, to, to make that basically, because again, our models are like three orders of magnitude smaller than whatever I've seen from Google or SageMaker and so on. And they also train two orders of magnitude faster. Uh, then you can put that into Excel or you can put that so that everybody can use it because that's always been 
the major the major point um, mm-hmm. that that you know you get this out to everybody. Mm-hmm. And the interesting part now is the moment you put that actually into something like a spreadsheet, your question would be, okay, but why does somebody care? Well, it turns out the moment you put machine learning into a spreadsheet, you can do what if questions like, what if I change this value? What the prediction then be? And these what if questions then obviously become like an expert. They're like, if I'm asking you, well, what if, you know, the podcast takes too long or what if my answer is this, right? This is, you are the expert on this and I'm the expert on, on other stuff. But then based on your data, the what if questions in a table could become the basically in, a, in a AI for everybody. And what I learned uh, doing my startup is you can't actually really sell machine learning, but what you can sell is AI because that actually is, is sort of once you replace sort of a human expert in something, that's that's value obviously because the human expert would otherwise cost money right yeah and it's not nearly as scalable yeah uh, or not as easily scalable um okay so brainome you're the cto co-founder kicked off looks like about two years ago right Mm -hmm. tell me more about that like what what do you all do and who's the audience that you serve yeah so basically what happened there is again i've been doing ai since 2001 so oh my god that's 20 years now it's <laughs> the first time i think about that Oof. okay anyway it doesn't matter <laughs> uh, for 20 years and and for the last couple of years my biggest problem was that while i was happy doing ai the way i was doing ai and machine learning i then figured out something is wrong everything is anecdotal right everything we hear from it's like the success story here the success story there and it doesn't feel like it, it automatically translates right so for example um, i think a, a prominent example is ibm watson whatever came out of it where was the translation from from something like that watson did to something more general that's useful in a product mm. right it kind of is all anecdotal and i said why is it that it's all anecdotal and it turns out we look at history in history, something that was anecdotal before was alchemy, <laughs> right? They figured out, oh, if I do this substance and this substance, that happened. Mm-hmm. But there was no general framework for it. And it okay. turns out, yeah, that had to be developed. So alchemy became chemistry. And this is what I see here too. This is what I started working on. My theory that would generalize, that would in generally tell you how machine learning works. How do you measure your data? How do you measure that you have enough data? How do you measure that your model that you selected is actually the right model for this particular task? Mm. How do you measure the size of the model that you would need to comprehend that data and so mm. on? This is the theory. And I worked on this theory for about three years. Um, and now I'm actually writing this up you know, as, as, a, as a textbook as well. But apart from that, I was like, no, theory is one thing and theories can be on a bookshelf for a long, long time. I really want to make this real. And so, I found you know, a couple of initial investors and we started Brainome. And Brainome actually makes this really real because what it does is it's basically like it's two tools in one. One is a measurement tool. So it gives you all this information about do I have enough data and which machine learner should I use? Or is this kind of feature set better than this other feature set? This is a measurement tool. But it also will automatically build a model bespoke to your data based on those measurements. Mm. And so it acts like a compiler, literally, comma separate value file in, uh, predictor out. And right now we're creating Python predictors, okay? okay? But so basically it becomes an automatic process. And of course, AutoML is claiming they do the same, but they don't because what they do is they try all the models on earth that they know and hope that something, some of them fits. Well, we actually built those models based on information measurements to your data. 
um, basically neuron by neuron or decision branch by decision branch. Um, and that's exactly like an engineer would build your kitchen, right? I see. Hmm. Yeah. So who is your customer? Yeah, so we have uh, different customers. One, first of all, uh, there's a free version out that everybody can try. You just do pip install Brainome and go okay. ahead and try it. Okay. The second thing is we uh, research institutions. So because here's what happens. There is a lot of data scientists uh, needed, but not enough data scientists out there. So we enable, for example, biologists to, to uh, you know, just run machine learning on their data so, so to see what's going on there, right? Mm. And also, in particular, we actually a pretty good tool for that because we don't have a problem with the curse of dimensionality. It turns out when you have very high dimensional problems, things change. But because we measure things out, we know that they change and we'll act accordingly. And... Um, so uh, lots of basically bio-research institutions. Uh, I'm not sure if I can say the names, but you know. Oh, them. no, I wasn't looking for, for names, yeah. just in general, yeah. Yeah, who you're serving. Basically, yeah, it was, it's mm -hmm. scientific. They also like the fact that it's reproducible, yeah. right? Every okay. time you run the tool, you get the same result. All of these, and, and of course, I'm not surprised. As I said in the earlier, I'm a, I'm a fundamental scientist, fundamentalist scientist. And so, of course, uh, we resonate well with those people because they like, you know, that this stuff is rigorous. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your current biggest pain point at Brainome or biggest challenge? I think my biggest challenge is to, is to first of all, as a startup, always um, outreach, right? We are small, you know, everybody else is big. Okay. That's number one. And of course, I'm happy to be on a podcast here for that. But the other pain point is obviously uh, misinformation, right? So the issue is that Google, NVIDIA, and so on, they have incentive to, to have people think that there's no data like more data. It's wrong, it's easily wrong. And I can show it to you in a minute, in a minute if you want. It's a very simple proof that there's no data like more data is absolutely wrong, okay? Mm. And then there's easy incentive to say, oh yeah, there's gonna be a linear increase in the, uh, in the model size of natural language processing models because GPT-3 is so big. No. You want a linear increase, but you want to sell more hardware. But the reality is these models can be two or three orders of magnitude smaller. And, and there are proofs uh, in my lecture and then soon in my book that, first of all, we know from, from 1956 Kolmogorov that three layers are enough. Deep learning isn't, isn't necessary, really. You only need three layers. And the hmm. next thing is the hidden layer only has to be logarithmic in size compared to the number of instances that you look at. So these networks can be extremely small. So hmm. why is deep learning interesting? Well, because the training methods don't work so well. So we have sort of, the, this helps with training. But the other thing is that obviously for images particular or any sensor data, you have a lot of noise. And so they use convolution in the beginning, but that's not new. We had image pyramids for, for decades, right? And so, as I said, there's a lot of, a lot of hype on misinformation, uh, even in that area, because it's like, oh, deep learning is the solution to everything. No, deep learning is a very special solution for image recognition, and then also particular images, by the way. And you have to adopt every other, whatever you do to whatever you do anyway. But yeah, let's, let's call it deep learning, right? So. It's like no area is immune to misinformation, you know? Exactly. I, it's like, Golly. And it's, it's an uphill battle, I'm sure, for you and your team to educate uh, right. even people already familiar with this to say, like, have you, it's kind of like the idea of like, 
stopping to ask yourself as a founder, is my ladder even leaning up the right wall, right? It's like, right. am I even right, working on the right thing? And, and that's got to be a challenge for you all to change people's mindset and paradigm in the way that they look at this in general. Well, the interesting part is there are two, uh, there are two ways of doing it. One is, again, junior people immediately get it. They're like, what they tell me here about machine learning seems way too empirical. This is a systematic approach. I get that. So my students, so my class at Berkeley raised from, it started 2018 with seven students. Then we had uh, 2019, we had 20 students. I'm going to discount 2020 because, you know, <clears throat> 2020 didn't happen. Yeah. But 2021, this has 98 students. So oh. it's basically super exponential growth because people realize, oh my God, systematic knowledge about machine learning. How cool is that? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's human nature to be systematic and it saves so much work, right? And it saves so much compute as well. But again, the incentives aren't there. Having said that, I strongly believe um, that this is not, it was never sustainable to waste was never sustainable. And so sure. the moment people realize that this is so much easier that you can rerun 5 million samples like Higgs boson detection on my 2012 laptop. And the, the original research was like on a compute cluster. Come on. Right. So, so it, it, it will, it, you know, I'm a fundamental, uh, fundamental scientist. So I think it will prevail. It's just a matter of, of when, mm -hmm. but the other set of people that seem to get it are actually funny enough the absolute high rank so like if you go really up high like you know the head of one of these research institutes they get it immediately they're all like yeah yeah looking from a big picture so it's both the people who oh. are introduced to it they're like oh yeah yeah this makes so much more sense than all the other introductions and then the people are, are up high who've seen it all and say oh my god finally somebody's doing the right thing because oh. they're looking at it from a big a bigger picture lens Yes, exactly. So mm. big picture people usually get it. Um, the worst, the worst are the people who just did their data science degree and just learned <laughs> this. And yeah. you go like, I'm sorry, you gotta, it's not redoing <laughs> everything. It's just, you know, there's an extra part to it. That will save you a lot of work, but you know, they get, they get, paid, get paid to tune hyperparameters. And I'm like, I know, but I don't like to tune hyperparameters. I don't know. I like to ask the right questions. That's what I like to do as a scientist. <laughs> Why are you, you're obviously extraordinarily passionate about this. You've stuck with it mm -hmm. for more than 20 years. Why? Like, why, why are you so passionate about this as a, as a pursuit? Um, uh, it is actually almost spooky. Um, because if you think about this, uh, what did we do before? What we did before was be before machine learning, right? And before computers, what we did before is we had a phenomenon, right? We had to look at a phenomenon and try to understand it. The way to understand it is you measure it out. You have experimental conditions, right? Let's say you're testing you know, a vaccine. Well, there's age, there's gender, there's, I don't know, body mass, whatever you can come mm -hmm. up with. And then you give the vaccine and you ask immune yes or no after, I don't know, six months, right? Mm -hmm. So you create this long table of things. And the interesting part is that the original work of a scientist was to look at the table and finally come up with a formula and make the decision. Well, what we do right now is we take that table and give it to the computer come up with something and make that decision. So um, I, again, as a go and say, well, that means that we're going to replace Einstein's brain with a machine. And it's interesting. Who's famous now? Not the researchers anymore. It's GPT-3. Yeah. Right? It's not right. I'm sorry. So the major point is, first of all, I think... Obviously, machine learning should help us 
uh, augment uh, the scientific decision. I'm completely for it. Mm -hmm. But GPT-3 is kind of replacing it and it's now magic. And it's like, no, as, 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 as a scientist, I first of all, I'm there to dispel the magic. And second, let's do it right. Let's have the computer come up with models that actually augment the scientific process so that we understand what's going on, right? Let's find out why, let's have the computer answer the why questions. Mm -hmm. Again, coming back to those. And, you know, ask anybody at Google, why does GPT-3 work? Hmm. The answer is, oh, because Google is awesome, right? I'm saying, it's like, no, this is not a scientific answer, right? <laughs> right. Um, trying to do with so much data, la, 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 okay. Uh, did you overfit it? Would it work with anything else? Just as a lookup table? Good question, right? None of these baseline experiments have been conducted, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so we need to get away from this and we need to, we need to, uh, get back to the rigor. And guess what? I think if we do that, then we will also convince more people who don't believe in science to believe in science. Because um, another stick, for example, that I have is math education, right? Most of our lives we spent doing calculus in high school. And it's really interesting is I, I say the same about PE. Most of my life I spent doing track and field. I'm not good at track and field, but in my, in my adult life, I ran marathons you know, I have a third down in Taekwondo. I don't think I'm not a sporty person. I actually am quite fit. But of course, if, if the only discipline I need to learn in PE is, is, is track and field, well, I guess, and I'm not good at that particular one, mm -hmm. guess what? Then you'll hate sports for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And this is the same with math. Math has so many disciplines, but mm -hmm. we need to put on calculus on people just because of, well, tradition. Uh -huh. It turns out calculus is actually not so very good when you try to deal with computers because anything in calculus like an integral or a differential equation can only be guessed and checked against. You use Monte Carlo simulations. Rather, if we taught discrete math, if we taught information theory, if we taught you know, more statistics, stuff that is more amenable to computing, to automatic computing, um, even logic should be taught absolutely in, 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 in school, then guess what? then people would see, oh, math is so many disciplines. And yeah, right. just because I like this one, it doesn't mean I don't like all of it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, tradition is such a powerful and incredibly powerful force. And yeah. it's beautiful in a lot of ways, but it's unfortunate or it plays out in an unfortunate way in many circumstances, in, including what you're saying here. And I, can, uh, I think we can broadly apply that idea to lots of different areas of life. And it, it just, it's kind of, overwhelming and a little depressing to think about fighting against tradition to get people to view things with a new lens, including yeah. everything that you've been talking about. It's like, that's, that's honestly got to be a little bit overwhelming for you, right? It's like, well, so the, the interesting part is I, I tend to remind people, especially working in artificial intelligence, you have to go with a working definition of intelligence, right? And so the trick is if I'm going to say one, and of course people are going to say, but, 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 okay, you can say your buts. <laughs> the working definition of intelligence for me, and it works really well in my entire theory framework, is intelligence is the ability to adapt to changing goals. And the trick here is that makes a smartphone smart, right? Because now you can have an app and your goal is a different one, right? And, and the trick here is that it's the same as resilience, right? Now a virus comes along. Well, let's adapt, like, you know, all the waiters had to be Uber drivers or something, uh -huh. right? So that's intelligence. They had to adapt to, uh, survival is still there, but how do I do this now? How do I, you know? And that's actually what really, really makes intelligent people to 
to adapt and to to see mistakes and to to, hmm. to just correct them. Where does wisdom factor in? Because if I'm a, a waiter and mm -hmm. I can see what's happening, like I still have to discern that and and apply some level of wisdom to decide to make that change period. And then, you know, when to make that change. So how do you factor that in? Well, so there's different levels of knowledge, right? One is anecdotal knowledge that is really just temporary, right? Okay. But then there's also fundamental knowledge. Fundamental knowledge is knowledge that never changes. Mm -hmm. Typical examples in science is thermodynamics. Thermodynamics, I call the constitution of science. Okay. You can never, you can create whatever law you want, but if it goes against thermodynamics, you get into trouble. <laughs> okay. okay. It's just like a president. You can try every law you want, but you can't go against the constitution. And that's the trick. Uh, uncertainty always goes up, period. Okay. If you don't see that, you didn't see it right. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a bunch of things that are completely fundamental. And I would call these wisdom. And I would also make sure that the fundamental knowledge get taught, gets taught first. And I don't understand why we don't do that, right? So why don't we start with the fundamentals and then you can branch off in your specials. But it has to do, I think, with how humans grow up. They want to be productive as fast as they can. So it's much easier to, to teach them what's currently at the edge so they can get into a job. Yeah. But as people grow older, they figure out, oh my God, if I just now I have to derive the fundamentals by myself. If I just learned that earlier, that it would have saved me so much time. Yeah. Makes you think of first That's principles. Exactly. Just in general. Hmm. Yeah. How do you apply that when like, you mentioned productivity? And one of the themes that I like to think a lot about and, and discuss on the show and just with other people is this idea of productivity and how we measure that in our modern way of work. And I recognize that there were periods historically where productivity was measured in a very precise, finite way. You know, you're working on the assembly line, you assemble X number of widgets and, and Y number of hours or whatever. How do you think of that now, especially in the position of a founder, when you have to evaluate at the end of the day, did I contribute something towards the goal today? Did I move the ball down the field? Like, how do you evaluate what is and what is not productive in your daily life as a founder? That's a very <laughs> good question. Of course, the the unfortunate standard measure of productivity is money, right? Um, but then also we know time is money and so on. And funnily enough, uh, if you ask Einstein, time, time doesn't actually exist, okay? So time is a virtual dimension that humans created. Well, so is money, obviously. Um, but um, I, if you really think about it from a, from a fundamental, and I think that's where your question goes about, from a fundamental mm -hmm. wisdom standpoint, it would be how much uncertainty did you reduce for somebody? Okay. So, so it, it could be anything. You could be a nurse. And of course that, that person that, that's, that's sick that you're caring for without you would be completely lost. It would be uncertain if they survive even, but uh -huh. with a nurse, she helps that person. And it's like amazing. Right. Or you could be uh, a bank, a simple service is a bank is the simplest service of uncertainty where it's like, Oh, guess what? You put the money with us and you don't have to worry about it anymore where you put it into like chests or something, you know, we get to like video games where you open the random people's chest, right? The same, mm -hmm. same things actually happen this way. And, and you can think of whatever profession you can think of. It's ultimately you reduce somebody else's uncertainty as a service. Okay. It's like, how do I get from A to B? Well, I call an Uber. No, that is an uncertainty reduction, right? And then the actual productivity is to do it. Do you, 
I can hear that you you speak a lot in fundamentals in kind of ethereal mm-hmm. language. Is it, a, is it hard for you to, like when it comes to implementation, boots on the ground, taking action, or do you find that you have a nice balance between the two? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I love this question. Um, I go between different modes, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, for example, it's interesting when I run or when I take a shower, when I have my brain in the right mode, I think in fundamentals. I literally do the, mm-hmm. the thing sometimes also where, you know, I don't know, the Queen's Gambit on Netflix where she uh-huh. moves the chest yeah, figures. Yeah. I do that with math sometimes when I, when I have questions like that. But in other ways, if I just, sometimes I'm grumpy that things don't get done. And so I just go boots on the ground and get them done. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, usually uh, when I'm in that mode, I'm really fast. And then nobody disturbs me. And then I'm like, boom, like, just, just let me do it. Okay. So most of Brain Ohm's code, I've actually written myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so now, of course, we have more people and so on. And I'm becoming more of an actual CTO role. And <laughs> it's more like strategic and, and, and fundamentals and what's uh-huh. the next step and so on. But in the beginning, no, I totally wrote the first, I don't know, 10,000 at least lines of code for Brain Ohm. Um, absolutely. Also, I enjoy that. I mean, it's ultimately how it all started. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the founders that are ultimately successful either have that natural or a nice blend between those two elements that you just described, else they partner with somebody that does, that complements them where they're deficient. Yeah. I, I'm curious, like, have you, I know that you're, you're partnered, you have a co-founder. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you find that you two complement each other well in, in yes. these different areas? Yeah. So we had a company first where we created this uh, uh, speech recognition uh, board that you can program freely without the internet. So basically Alexa without spying on you. It's, it's called Movie, which is more advertising. So this is for, uh, for Arduino. Okay. But the, the interesting part is that um, doing that company, I realized, oh, wow, like, uh, one thing is, I, I mean, I basically built the whole thing, software and hardware by myself. Just, you know, I wanted the kick of being on Kickstarter. And so I got that kick and it was really okay. cool. Okay. And honestly, both were like, uh, we, while this Kickstarter numbers were going up, that was like, I don't think any other drug could have given us that high. That was unbelievable <laughs> when you have Kickstarter. It's an extreme interesting experience. Anyway. And at the other hand, though, he kept me grounded. He was like, okay, so we have this amount of money. It's some money, but it's not infinite money. Mm-hmm. And then also there's a timeline and mm-hmm. let's make sure the timeline fits. And, you know, there's all these laws here. We have to pay sales tax and all of these kind of things. And that was really good because I definitely did not want to pay attention to these kind of things. Um, and so, yeah, that was absolutely complimentary in that way. And I think he appreciated that he learned a lot from me technically. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that he just, I could rely on him being a rock on like, you know, going to the lawyer, creating terms of service. It's like, mm-hmm. right, you need that, right? Stuff like that. He just did, right? That's great. So would you recommend to founders that they have a co-founder? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually recommend it. I would even go and say I recommend a team of three um, oh. because well, it, breaks, it breaks ties, right? It's because uh-huh. you both think you're right when there's, a, <laughs> when there's something. And even if the decision ends up being wrong, if two people stood behind it, as two people, they may have an easier time uh, saying, okay, that was wrong. Let's go somewhere else, right? Um, I think three is optimal, but I also realize it's not always easy to find three. Um, that's why I started with two as well. Hmm. 
but also was suggested by various founders get a third person. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. This is obviously very anecdotal, but we've, we've <coughs> interviewed somewhere in the range of 160 plus founders on the few show. And the vast majority of those have a co-founder. These are generally funded companies, not always, mm -hmm. but generally And the vast, I could probably count on one hand, how many are solo founders. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that, that it most often plays out in the way that you're describing with at least two. I, yeah. And I think, I mean, I mean, I get that some people just want to do it all, but really your life is, it's hard enough in a startup. So <laughs> it's much yeah. easier, you know, to have a number two. Um, and really, if you hit it big, it doesn't matter whether you even have to divide by two or three, right? Mm -hmm. So- Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I enjoy having, I, mean, I have a co-founder and we're 50-50 partners and I enjoy having David help me carry the weight of the responsibility <laughs> because it's like, I, we have very trusted employees that I that completely trust, but there's a, there's a difference in the weight of the responsibility and mm -hmm. that being able to be shouldered by another co-founder versus an employee, you know, it's just different. So like, there's been many times where I'm like, I'm just so grateful that I can share this problem, this challenge with David, and we can bear the burden together. Yeah. And I, that's, that's exactly how I feel about, by the way, Bertrand Iriso is just to give the name. Um, but the other thing is also life happens, right? So, you know, you get sick or you have to grieve some loss or something. Uh, if you by yourself, you may, you know, the paperwork just goes up and you don't respond to emails or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so having somebody else chip in then is extremely, extremely, uh, you know, can save the life of your company, honestly. Yeah. Right. I agree. Well, we are getting really close on time. I want to ask okay. you one more question and then we'll, mm -hmm. we'll part ways. And that is if you were to go back in time and mm -hmm. give the younger version of yourself advice, pick the time, five, 10, 15, 20 years, in the context of being a founder, and this is to, to benefit mm -hmm. other founders that are listening, what advice would you give to your younger self that you've that you've learned and maybe now implement? Oh, the advice is uh, I should have been an entrepreneur earlier. The okay. advice really is I spend a little bit too much time in, well, you know, I do like research and I still do it, but I spend too much time in sort of this formalized research environment where it's, where it's, uh, you know, right government proposals and so on. Okay. Um, when again, teaching is different. If you're in university, it's a very different uh, job, but if just as a research scientist writing proposals and trying to get work done, I've, I think I spend too much time in it. Um, and uh, I should have been starting doing a startup earlier. What prevented you from jumping? I was just, uh, to be frank, fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was more like, oh my God, what if I don't succeed? You know, I, I, this is comfort, right? So yeah, yeah. I'm not perfect either. <laughs> yeah, yeah there certainly is at risk. But, you know, there's a lot of risk, obviously, in certain professions as well. I know some are more secure than others, but I, that's one thing, because I, I, I have the same experience where I eventually jumped off and had a, I had a, a wife and kids and I... Mm -hmm. It was scary, but then I thought to myself, golly, like there's just not, I think there's this illusion in some cases of stability in the employment exactly. world. That's not, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not saying that it's, that it's, you know, that entrepreneurship is, you know, it is more risky, but still it's like, it helped to reconcile all of that to make that decision. Yeah. And, and often, I mean, especially in startups, but also in, in regular companies, they may be six months away from, from not having money. And then of course, every, they make it fast enough that the yeah. pipeline works, but the, the, the trick is 
all they do is they don't tell the employees. Right? <laughs> you just don't know. So, yeah. You have the same job security as the founders, except the founders know about it, right? So that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's such a good point. Uh, well, Gerald, this has been fun. The your website is brainome.ai, so it's brainome.ai. And what's mm -hmm. the best way for people to reach out if they want to learn more or if they just want to say hello? Uh, well, there's, there's uh, I think, a contact form on Brainome, but oh. also um, there's uh, my, I think my email address is on, the, on my website, on my personal website, you know, so go ahead and uh, yeah, and also LinkedIn, by the way, just put in my Perfect. name and, and I usually accept all contact requests. Um, but don't spam me. If you spam me, I will yeah. still accept the contact. Yeah, request, please, don't. Not ask you. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> we, we get enough of that. That's for sure. Well, okay. Gerald, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate your, your willingness to spend time with us and to share your yeah. wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this was a really, really, really pleasant conversation. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. Cheers. Bye-bye. Goodbye.